Father, we thank you for this uh, opportunity to start this new study. We uh, ask you to uh, bless us as we look into the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the ability to come together. We thank you for safe travels to get here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, originally I named this uh, study Paul Center to Saint, and then I looked at it and said, I don't like that. Because I think Paul would have been offended if he would have been described himself as a sinner because his first mindset of himself was not a sinner. He would have said he was righteous. According to the Torah, uh, the Jewish scriptures, um, what is a sinner? If we said, what is a sinner according to a Christian mindset, what is a sinner? That would probably be a good, yeah, yeah, that'd be a good uh, analogy. Um, transgresses against the moral law of the Ten Commandments. I like that. That's probably spot on. What would be a, a sinner according to a Jew? It's very similar. Somebody who does not keep the Torah, right? Now, they got a little more than just simple ten. Uh, the, the, the ten is the moral law. They would say somebody who doesn't keep Sabbath, somebody who does not keep dietary laws, somebody who does not keep uh, ritual purity laws. So there's a lot more for the Jews than just simply the Ten Commandments of the moral law. There's 613 laws that the Jews have to keep ceremonially, uh, personally, uh, relates to the family all the way through. So a sinner is anybody who does not keep the, the law. Now, is there ever a reason that you might not be able to keep the law and you might have to be a sinner? Well, that's probably, it, maybe if you're doing a good work, remember the, the Pharisees were, were criticizing Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, and they say, you're breaking Sabbath. And he says, it's okay to break the law if the greater good is at stake. You might have to work on the Sabbath in order to feed your family. So, yeah, you want to keep the law, you want to try to keep the law, but, but life has a tendency to get in the way. So, Basically, the Pharisees say, no, 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 you have to, the, keeping the law is paramount, uh, paramount above everything else. And, and basically, Jesus comes back and says, no, 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 there's a law higher than law. The, it's like the, the, the rules of the road. They're there to help you, again, to get from point A to point B safely. But as I said last week, is there ever a time that you might need to speed? Yes. Yeah, mercy. Yeah, it's a good example. Perfect example, right? And uh, so somebody's having a heart attack, somebody's been in a car wreck. Pregnant. Yeah, pregnancy. Um, whatever, right? So, so there are reasons that you might need to speed and you might get pulled over. And he says, well, why are you speeding? Well, look at my wife over here who's going into labor. Either you can deliver the baby or we can get to the hospital. He'll say, follow me, right? You know, put on the lights. So, so there are times and, and reasons for us or people to maybe keep the law. How about the moral law? Would there ever be a time that you might not keep the, the Ten Commandments? <coughs> what if you're... Uh, what was there's time when you take the Lord's name in vain? Um, well, there's a time to use the Lord's name. That Paul, uh, uh, sorry, Luther would say that there's a, a time to use it properly, right? So he'd right. say that. He would say you're you're not breaking the, the Ten Commandments if you use God's name for the right reason. Um, but how about uh, going back to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was a pastor during Nazi Germany, and he was a spy. And and you know Luther says honor thy father and mother means obeying your civil authorities. But what if they're doing evil? They're killing Jews. So so could there be a time to maybe lie to the authorities in order to save life? See, or, or perhaps um, uh, in, in the moral law, your, your father is an alcoholic and he gives you $25 and he's in a drunken stupor and he says, go buy me a case of beer. And instead you take the $25 and you stick it in your pocket and you don't buy the case of beer. Well, your father told you to go do something. You dishonored him. But the greater good was what? You didn't feed his alcoholism. So is there a time that maybe we don't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly because there's a higher reason for that. Okay, So that's, that's what Jesus is saying, but, but a sinner is somebody who doesn't keep the law. So a, a, a sinner is somebody, we would say, as a Christian, is, 
is not keeping the moral law or the Ten Commandments. So that's a sinner. And somebody who does it is somebody who's righteous. So Paul would have described himself not as a sinner, but he would have described himself as being righteous. But the problem is his own righteousness. Not God's righteousness, but his own righteousness. So, so Paul would have said, I'm righteous. But then I said, but God rejected that. And then what Paul does is he becomes redeemed in Christ. So I think that when I say righteous, I should have said self-righteousness, but I like the RRR and it sounds better, mm -hmm. right? So he was righteous, rejected in his self-righteousness, and then finally he discovers redemption in Christ. So I think that's Paul's movement. Not really sinner to saint. Uh, Paul wasn't this guy that was um, an alcoholic, that was uh, angry at God, and then suddenly found Jesus. That is not Paul's conversion at all. At all. It's a, it's a totally different pathway, and I think it's important for us to understand that so that we can uh, understand Paul. Now, you're probably going to learn more about Paul than you ever want to know. Paul is tough to get. I'm just going to say that from the outset. Paul's tough to understand. Paul's tough to get. Every time I think I've got Paul, then he starts sliding out of my hands again like an eel, and you got to re-grab him. And I've done about three or four detailed studies of the Apostle Paul, and, and every time I do one, I discover something new. Every single time. So, so if you think, you know, Paul's a one and done, you know, Paul is a, a work in progress that you're always trying to work with, but he's a very, very important figure, and he's, he's a mixed bag. He's a mixed bag, okay? He's got his strengths, and he's going to also have um, some weaknesses. Okay, so the first thing we need to understand about Paul, though, is Paul's going to have his life turned around uh, midstream. Let's look at uh, somebody, let's say Acts chapter uh, 9, verses uh, 1 through uh, 19. Let's get to Acts 9, 1 through 19. Yes, please. But let's give everybody a minute to get there. Is everybody there? If you're all there, say amen. amen. All right, they're there. Go ahead. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. I don't know if that's Ananias. Ananias. The Lord said to him in person, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus. And named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil has he done to our saints at Jerusalem? And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he has chosen an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Nias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may reign your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and that was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Okay, so, so basically, as I said here, not how did Paul turn his life around midstream. That's not what was asked here. 
question is, is how has Paul's life turned around midstream? So this is something that is happening to Paul, not something that Paul is doing to himself. That's very important to define. It's a little bit of a rejection of that American Protestantism where you're in charge of your own faith and somehow you found Jesus. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Sure. In verse number four, it said he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He already knew then that that was the Lord? No, he's saying, who are you? Kurios is a term for God in the New Testament. It's only reserved for God. So he obviously knows he's hearing the voice of God. He knows that this is a divine moment. But he basically says, I don't know who you are. I'm looking for you. Right? But who are you? So Paul is having some, obviously, some internal questions about how God is going to send Messiah to save the nation of Israel. That's what all Pharisees were looking for. That's what everybody was looking for. So he's probably assuming sort of that prophetic moment, sort of the call of the prophet. And Paul did consider himself to have the call of the prophet upon him. But he's sort of saying, who are you? Meaning, I hear, but I don't see. Then he's got, but here's the thing. I think Paul saw and didn't understand. Paul was present. We'll get into that with Paul. But Paul is clearly present in Jerusalem and aware of Jesus of Nazareth, but clearly rejects him for several reasons. And we'll get into some of that before his, before God's conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. Okay. 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 It's a fair question. Um, There's a lot here. Okay. So again, Paul's not looking for God. God's looking for Paul, but Paul thinks he's doing the right thing. And that's important to note. He, He thinks that his life is doing fine. <laughs> I'm doing quite well, thank you very much. Uh, it, it's very similar to um, people that, hey, I got my life all taken care of, you know, I'm, I got money in the bank, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old, you know, uh, I had a wonderful career, I got my grandkids all taken care of, now I'm ready to live my life, retire, and start traveling. And then you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you know, your, your, your panel doesn't look very good on your, your blood work. What do you mean? These, these numbers are elevated, but we, we think we need to do some more testing. What do you mean? And then suddenly you, know, you come back and you hear words like cancer or something to that effect, and people get angry. How dare cancer interrupt my life? How dare this event happen to me? And I think that's very similar. Uh, Paul is not really looking for Jesus as the Messiah, but Jesus is looking for Paul. And and I think that that's what's happening. Jesus is getting Paul's attention in a very dramatic way. Okay. Now, one of the things I like about that text is it says, he saw but couldn't see. Such a great thing. He's seeing, perceiving, but he's his, his physical eyes are, are taken away. And I think there's some reasons for that. Uh, but uh, he quick, clearly goes into fasting and prayer. He's a good Jew. And, and then this Ananias on Straight Street. By the way, you can actually go on Straight Street if you go on Holy Land, Holy Land tours. You can actually walk Straight Street. They know exactly where it is. They, they've uh, uncovered all of that. So where Paul had to hang out and fast and pray for several times until Ananias restores his physical sight. But... Just because you can't see one way doesn't mean that you don't perceive in different ways. Is that not true? It's, it's amazing that uh, in that world they actually name the streets. You know, like a, you would think it would be just a plain old road or whatever, but they actually named it Straight Street. Well, when I was working in prison, um, they had nicknames for parts of the compound. Like, um, we had these huge... Metal, this huge metal gate as you were coming in, and it was like two stories. It was, it was huge, and they called it the King Kong Gates. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and people would say, you come through the Kong Gate to get into the institution. And when I first got to Elkin, I said, the Kong Gate? What the heck is a Kong Gate? Yeah, it looks like King Kong Gates from the movie King Kong. <laughs> and then I looked at it and said, 
ah, that kind of looks like the King Kong game. So, you know, <laughs> so you start, so, so people pick up nicknames, uh, places, straight, why would they call it Straight Street? It's straight. It's straight. <laughs> it's seems strange, you know, instead of Elm or Main or, or Maple Street or whatever, they named it straight. You know, okay. I, 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 I should, I, is this a case that I should? No, right? no, no. <laughs> when, when you do, I'll let you know, okay? <laughs> no, when, <laughs> when, when I was a pastor in Texas, there was a town called Gun Barrel, Texas. And I said, why do you call it Gun Barrel? Because it's straight as a gun barrel. <laughs> That's what it was. It's going to be Gunbarrel, Texas. That's what they know. So, so what we want to understand here, though, is, is that Paul is not looking for God. God is looking for Paul, or Jesus is looking for Paul. And he's going to go through a dramatic conversion experience. It's a midlife interruption. Um, and is how Paul, how old do we think Paul is about this moment? Oh. You're close. He's a little bit younger than that because he's not a full rabbi yet. How old do you have to be before you can become a rabbi? Nope. Guess. 30. 30 years old before you can become a rabbi. You could apprentice yourself to be an apprentice of a rabbi. You could be a seminary student. How old was I when I became a pastor? 30. 30. Um, I look that old. Boy. Sip it up, Eddie. Okay. You get three strikes. That's strike one. Okay. Um, so, so basically, uh, he, he's not yet 30. He's still a student, but he's clearly getting pretty doggone close. Who, who's his rabbi? He, might, we, he says that in the book of Acts. I didn't put that in here, but who's he a student of? Anybody know? You said Gamaliel. Gamaliel, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that he's, and Gamaliel's really, Shammai and Gamaliel are the two great rabbis in the ancient world. So Gamaliel is, is the one that he's apprenticed to. But he'll have a break with his rabbi over this controversy, and I'll, I'll put that in for next week. Um, now, here's the thing is, is Christianity thriving throughout the world, or is it being rejected throughout the world? It's growing in, in, in parts and regions. Where is it just going gangbusters? Africa's a big one. Where else? It's like an oriental. Asia? Parts of Asia? Korea? Korea is very strong Presbyterian. Very strong Presbyterian presence. The Presbyterians went in and did a lot of evangelism after the Korean War in the 50s and the 60s and the early 70s. Um, but yeah, it's growing. Uh, where else? Central and South America. Doing quite well. Um, I think that's prime region for Lutheranism because of that strong Roman Catholic influence. Uh, you know, we are really not American Protestant and we're really not Roman Catholic. We have two streams that come into us. We really are our own animal. We really are uh, a, a unique uh, denomination within uh, Christianity as far as I'm concerned. So it is growing. Now is it growing in the West? Europe? America? Yes or no? It is not. It, it, it's, it's declining in numbers, but it's declining it, excuse me, it, but it's increasing with people who are looking to make a further commitment. Uh, there's three kind of Christians. I mean, of course, there's the non-Christian, and then there's, I think there's three categories of Christians within the church. There's uh, casual Christians, and those are the people that sometimes show up and sometimes don't, okay? There's consumer Christians who are just there because you're providing something for them, and the moment that you no longer provide that, they're out the door and they're, looking for the next place to go. And then there's committed Christians. So you have casual, consumers, and committed. And what's happening is, is we're seeing a decline in the casual Christians, and we're seeing a decline in the consumer Christians, but the committed ones are more committed. Uh, since COVID has occurred, uh, the churches, the Lutheran churches that are doing the best are the ones that have the traditional service. That's been the first service that has responded honestly that's just the facts and I can cover some of that but but the but the consumer service COVID they've gone on to something else you know whatever that is now will that come back it might probably later but but the services that seem to be doing the best at least for the Lutherans are the more traditional uh, type services and and that's why your your numerical numbers can decline but your giving can actually go up 
and that is another trend that we're seeing so just because churches are numerically declining doesn't mean that they're financially declining because a lot of the people who are no longer coming work even in the first place just facts okay so so it is thriving um, and, and people are looking for a place where they can make a commitment um, so that's important number three why was Paul's first opinion of the Jew, Jewish what was Paul's first opinion of the Jewish uh, Jesus movement within Judaism let's look that up first uh, Corinthians uh, 15 9 uh, let me do a little uh, background here on the church in Corinth this was a church with a lot of issues had a lot of baggage Paul's gonna write at least two letters that we have first and second Corinthians but uh, he's he'll you know he addresses the Lord's Supper and all kind of practical values or issues people using their Christian freedom for the wrong reasons what do you mean I can't go to the prostitute <laughs> I'm free in Christ I can do whatever I want you know and Paul says no you're free in Christ but there's an accountability to that freedom okay so a little bit of that. yes ma'am did anybody got that first Corinthians 15 9 somebody read that for me please Okay, so his first touchstone or experience with the Jesus movement, was it a positive or a negative experience? Negative. Did they reject him or did he reject them? He did. Now, why is Paul so anti-belief in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah? What's the issue there? Okay, so let's get a little background into the Jewish mindset. Jews don't think simply about themselves. They think about themselves as a group. They think of themselves as a nation or a community. So they're community first and individual second. That's really hard for Americans to get their heads wrapped around because everything for us is individual first and community second. But that's one of the reasons why I think we struggled so much in the Middle East is because we went in there, we thought, well, you know, we win individual hearts and minds and that's gonna create a nation. Not really. You have to win family hearts and minds. You have to win community hearts and minds because the Middle East mindset is not individual first and, and community second, but community first and individual second. So they have a different way of looking at it. Again, you know, in, in, in the West, you know, people say, well, you didn't fulfill my expectations of what this church should be, so I'm out of here. Whereas in, in the other way, they say, what do you need me to do to be a part to be a part of this community? Community is everything. I think we're kind of getting back to that. I've been doing a lot of reflection about this recent election in Italy, and I think it's we're breaking away from national identity to tribal identity, tribalism. Um, here's a good here's a good question for you. This might be a little controversial, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. <laughs> okay. Do you think in Osmond, Nebraska, people put the family clan before the church or the church before the family clan? I think so, too. I think so, too. Do they, do they put their family first and then before the church or the church before their family? Family first? Yeah, it does. Family first, right? Family first. Um, if you're in a church in an urban area or a suburban area where everybody's moving in and they don't have family in the area, what replaces that family for them? The church does. So there's a very different dynamic in a rural church that I'm starting to pick up, which is the family comes first and the church comes second. Whereas sometimes when you're in a suburban rural area or a suburban area, and people are distanced from their family. The family is still important, but the, the church becomes the, the supplemental family for them while they're there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a different mindset. So that's why a lot of times we probably have a harder time getting volunteers than a church that may say in Omaha because people have family stuff going on. They're so tied into family. So that is a dynamic that is here. Okay. So they're going to put family first. They're going to say, hey... That's fine, but I need to go. I need to be here because that's where the family is. That's just the nature of the community and the nature of how it. Is. So again, how people identify community in a farming community, 
family is community. It is community. And then the church kind of comes off of that or supplements that or supports that. So, but that's not how it was. Uh, yes and no. But for a Jew, it's all about national identity, Judaism. And they were looking for the nation to be saved. Not just the individual. So if we have a false messiah who comes along and begins to steer people away from the keeping of the law, that means that the nation might not be saved because that might hold up God sending Messiah. You see that? If people get on the wrong thing, it could mean that we're still under this Roman persecution or occupation for longer. And that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to get rid of the Romans. They were trying to get rid of the Gentile occupation of their land. And the Jews have a connection to the land. Even your farm, you, you farmers here, as much as I know that you guys love the land, but I have no, you have no concept of how the, the nation of Israel sees the land. They see it as a, not a, a gift from God, a divine right, and they occupy it as long as they're right with God. And if they reject God, then they get rejected from the land. That's the Babylonian captivity. That's what they're terrified of. So they want to stay in the land. When Israel came back into a nation after World War II, it was a junk heap. It was the trees had been stripped down. It was barren. It was it was not a pretty place. The the, uh, the Holy Land was not really holy except religiously. What it was the first thing the Jews began to do when they got it? Began to improve it and defend it. So it's two ways. They have they they are constantly improving it. Irrigation, planting trees, establishing hospitals, building schools. If you're a Jew, you can get automatic citizenship in Israel. Except if you're a Christian. If you're believing in Jesus, you're not allowed to. It's the one exception for a Jew. They'll take you even as a humanist, but they won't take you if you believe in Jesus as Messiah. That's kind of interesting. But so so basically you're a Jew. You're you're tied to the land. There's a connection to the land. One of my um, mentors led a tour, he said, of the Holy Land, and he finally convinced one of his Jewish friends, that, look, you need to come along. Even if you not, don't want to listen to the Christian stuff, you need, you're a Jew, you need to come to the Holy Land. And he said the guy came and did the tour. He said, how was it? He goes, I'll be back next year. Because he had, a, he had a, a connection with his faith in the land that we just don't get in our in our heads, okay. So so the controversy is is false Messiah means God rejecting Israel. That's the issue. False Messiah means God rejecting His people or Israel. People can't be led astray. We have to root out that controversy. We have to root out that heresy. We have to root out those false prophets because the national identity is at stake uh, if we don't. And He says that, right? Okay. Let's keep going. Number four. Any, by the way, anybody have any questions, just stop me and raise your hand and we'll talk about it. Except for Betty. Okay. <laughs> How did Paul help transition uh, the Jesus movement? Let's take a look at that. Uh, Galatians 2.8. So now we know he's rejected uh, Jesus at first, but now he's going to become a... Paul never became a Christian. He did become a follower of the way. But he's going to help transition this faith to reach out just beyond Jews. Okay. Galatians 2, 2 through 5. Somebody just jump on that and read it for me. Can I read 2 8 for a number? Did I not go far enough? Oh, I, oh, yeah, that's it. I'm sorry. I was looking at the one below it. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Okay, so here's what he's saying is, we had a game plan. Peter would go to the Jews, but I was called to go to whom? To which group? Gentiles. So he has a mission specific. Uh, I was uh, on the on the in a conference call this this week, and and I said, rural small town ministry. It's a unique ministry. We, we had the pastors here in the, in the circuit for a circuit meeting, and we were talking, and most of these guys have double, if not triple, parishes. 
and that's going to be the increasing you know the needs of the small churches in rural areas it's not just the needs of the small churches the needs of the small church in the rural area and we discussed you know when we came in said when you come out of the seminary that's all you're trained for you know you're trained to go to one church as an associate pastor and that's where no it's a whole different animal it's a whole different mindset so how you reach Jews is very different than how you're going to talk to Gentiles so why Paul to talk to Gentiles that's an interesting question what unique skill set does Paul have okay we know he's from what city what about Tarsus? What do we know about Tarsus? Or do we know anything about Tarsus? Is it bigger than Osmond, Nebraska? Undoubtedly. Yeah, <laughs> I think everything's bigger than Osmond, Nebraska, right? It's, it was fairly large metroplex. Uh, it's in uh, Turkey, um, it, uh, or modern Turkey. It, um, I think they estimated it had about a million people at the time that Paul was raised in, about the size of Omaha. It had surpassed even Alexandria, Egypt. And... Uh, uh, Athens, Greece, in uh, wisdom, it had, a, it had a very, very, very good education system, university system, so to speak. And, and it's a thoroughly Gentile city. But Paul is Jew living in a Gentile city. Why would a Jew be living in a Gentile city? Why does he move to Jerusalem? Well, that's where the work is. So what do we know a little bit about what, what was his occupation? We talked about this. What do you make? He's a tent maker. But that's, but it's, so is he sitting in the, the Negev or the South, killing goats and sewing together goat skin, little Wickham huts, like, like you see the Bedouins in? Yes or no? No. He's working with canvas. He's a contractor. And what was made from canvas? Sales. Sales for Roman ships and what else? Tents. Military tents. Yes. There you go. So he's a contractor. He's running a business. It's like when someone says, we're a farmer. <laughs> That's a bad term. I'm a farmer. No, it's not. You're not, a, you're not a farmer. You're a business operator. You're a small business operator when you're a farmer. When I think of farmer, I think of like the, the gentleman's farm with, you know, eight acres raising some goats and some chickens, and you call yourself a farmer, right? No, 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 no. You guys are running really big operations, slinging serious cash to keep that thing going, to buy equipment, to, to estimate and, and buy seed and feed and all that stuff. So there's a lot more to it than a farmer. That's a bad term. I say they're, they're, uh, they're running farming operations. That's really what you're doing. Paul is not a tent maker. He is a contractor, and that's important. And who would have been his number one client? Roman government. Roman government or Roman military, yeah. Now, how do we know he had, so he, he grew up in a Gentile city he, as a Jew, as a Pharisee. Okay, what does a Pharisee mean? Well, the term itself means separated one, detached group. The Pharisees were detached. So they said, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. That was what a Pharisee was. I'm detached. I'm here, but I'm not here. You see me, but you don't see me. I'm here, but you don't see me. So they were detached. That was kind of the concept of the Pharisees. So he's kind of in that city, but detached from that city. He has his own identity, because he identifies as a Jew, and he's a Pharisaic Jew. But, going a little bit further down the road, so he would have had unique relations. He knew the Gentile mind. He understood what Gentiles think. Y'all understand Northeastern Nebraska far more than I ever will. I'm still trying to figure out bars and taverns, right? <laughs> still, I, I, bar, so we're in worship, and it says, for, for the meal, it says bars and taverns. And it, <laughs> bars and taverns, I'm thinking bars and a tavern, and I think, right? I said, what's bars and taverns? And they said, it's a, loose, it's a loose meat sandwich. I said, that's a sloppy joe. No, 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 no. It's a tavern. So then we got into the So that became a big controversy for a while, looking it up on Google and learning where it came from. By the way, does anybody know where it came from? Why, they, why you call it taverns? Bars are easy because it's kind of a sheet pan. But what about taverns? Why, why does it taverns? Where did it get it to? 
You're close. There was a restaurant in Sioux City that began to serve those sandwiches, and I guess it was called the Tavern, and he had gone to the taverns. The truck drivers kind of gave it. It probably came across with the truckers as they began to, so people said, this just became the local lore. That's what Google said. Don't blame me. Yeah, so that's kind of where it came from. So that's your Iowa connection. Okay, so he knows the Gentile mind. He's also a Roman citizen. So we know, and he did not buy his citizenship. It was given to him, probably came through his father. So his father had been doing something for the Romans, making sails or tents for their ships and their soldiers and their fleet. That was very lucrative. Paul grew up with money. It's very important to understand that. Paul is not an unwealthy individual by any means. Now, what he does with his wealth is interesting, but he is... Do we think that he was married at one time? Do we think that Paul was married at one time? Most likely. Yeah, he says, when he talks about singleness, he says, basically, I encourage people to be single if they can, but if you can't, get married. But then he basically something like, and if you're single, kind of like like me, where I think he was widowed. Paul was probably widowed somewhere. Probably, I mean, this is speculation, but probably, well, how was he widowed? We know he doesn't have any children because he's always adopting everybody else's kids, Timothy and Titus. So, so probably, what's a safe assumption? His wife probably died. Yeah, probably died in childbirth. Probably so. I think there's, I think there's something to that. Okay. I mean, that's a stretch, but I think that's a fair assessment. So, okay. So we understand he's got a unique skill set, relationship, mindset of dealing with Gentiles that Peter would have never had. You got to think like a got to think like a Gentile. Paul could think like a Gentile. And he could think like a Jew. So he's the perfect bridge between the two. Let's talk a little about physical circumcision. Uh, Galatians 2, verses uh, 2 through 5. We're right there. Somebody just back up a little bit from 8 and read 2 through 5, please. Oh, not because of a revelation that's set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaim So this, this whole con, the controversy about circumcision. In order to become a Jew, there was two primary ways to become a Jew. You can be born a Jew, or you can convert to Judaism. So if you weren't born, then you had to convert. To convert, this was the process. Number one, you've got to be willing to find a rabbi that's willing to take you on. That's number one. You have to find a rabbi who's willing to take you on to instruct you to become a Jew. Number two, according to Torah, so you have to go through instruction. That usually lasted a year to 18 months. When the rabbi said you were ready to be converted, that's when you were converted. Not before, not when you thought you were going to be converted. Number two is that you would have to go through a ritual immersion called a mikvah, right? And if you were a female, well, you, everybody had to have a circumcision of the heart. But for males, they had to go through what? physical circumcision. Now, circumcision in eight days, the, the baby heals up pretty quickly. It's like the optimal time for a child to recover. But for a 30-year-old male, I don't know, man. <laughs> That's a deal breaker. I'll do the instruction. I'll do the mikvah. But uh, physical circumcision at 30? I want to be a Jew, but not that much. But it's commanded. You have to do it. I'll just be a worshiper of God. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's, that's something that I'm not going to do. And, and Paul comes back and rethinks that. And he says, this is the big stumbling block for Gentiles to become Jews, for males. So, so maybe the question is, is, is it necessary? For Jews, is it, is it necessary? Sure, because it's part of the Jewish nation. 
But maybe they're circumcised in a way that the physical circumcision isn't important. Circumcision of the heart. They believe. So why are we wasting our time? If we can remove this stumbling block, let's remove it and move on. That's what Paul does. And we have the freedom now in Christ to do that. We're free. We're not holding to the law anymore. Now we know that we are freed from the law. I love this statement. I heard this the other day as I've been working through some teachings on Paul. He said, Christianity, or better yet, let me say it this way. Jesus is Judaism filled all the way up to what it's supposed to be. If you want to know what Judaism is supposed to be, look at Judaism. Or excuse me, look at Jesus. That's it. It's filled all the way up. It's not like fulfilled and done away with. It's brought all the way up to its understanding, and then Christianity is supposed to be built on top of that. So what happens is Jesus elevates Judaism up to what God originally intended. Now we have a foundation, and he can build off of that into bringing Jews into their full understanding of what is supposed to be a Messiah. And Gentiles can come in, and we can build this new community or this church upon this. I thought that was great. So it's not like Paul's rejecting Judaism. He's saying this Messiah Jesus brings it all the way up to its full understanding, and then we can build off of that with the new covenant, which is the church. And you you cannot build the church until you have Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Until you have that confession, you can't build the church because Jesus never uses the term church until that confession. He basically says, who am I? And Peter says, this is who you are. He says, okay, now I can build my church. Ecclesia. And and church is never used in John's gospel, Luke's gospel, or Mark's gospel. It's only used in Matthew's gospel. Never thought about that, did you? The reason why is because Matthew is a a manual for discipleship in the building of the church. Okay? Little little sidebar. So, So again, he says... Tear down the controversy. It's not necessary. It's, 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 we, can, we, can, we can, in our freedom in Christ, we can reject this and move on. And people say, no, no, no. No, no, no. And in fact, it becomes so controversial, Paul starts questioning himself. He's always got these Judaizers nipping at his heels. And I will tell you, as a pastor, I can say this. You're always questioning yourself. At first, I was like, we're in the three-year lectionary. I'm going to get rid of the three-year lectionary. Then I came back and said, no, nah, maybe I'll go to the one-year lectionary. Then last week, I came in and Deb said, we're going to stick with the three-year lectionary. <laughs> I came full circle. I just went full circle. I thought through and through and through and through and through and came all the way back to the beginning. Okay? So he, he questions his, his ministry. He says, maybe I, ran my, maybe I ran the wrong race. Maybe I ran in vain. Maybe everybody said, go there, and I ran over here. And he goes, and he gets, so he, has, he, he seeks that validation uh, for his ministry. Have you ever thought, I know, I know people sometimes say, he talks about prison too much. <laughs> well, first of all, as I think, prison is a unique environment to understand ministry. The second thing is, is that it's kind of who I am, right? It's kind of who, who and what I am. You did call a retired prison chaplain. Okay. Let's take a look at uh, the Pharisaic Jews. Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, the woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his face with her tears. Thank you. 
see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you go in peace. And then we got 14 along. Yep. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Okay, I want to. Okay, so let's do a little deep dive into this. So, so we know that Jesus dined with Pharisees, and 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 again, so they were they were very interested in what he had to say. Just maybe, just maybe, the Apostle Paul is one of those people in the crowd spent there to be spying on him from the Sanhedrin. Maybe the Apostle Paul is in there and seeing this, and and and. Again, what's the issue with the the woman who with the alabaster jar? What's the what's the Pharisees' issue with her? And what's a sinner? One who does not keep Torah. And could there be reasons why you can't keep Torah? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. So so maybe whatever the reason is, and I'm not going to get into speculation, that she's unable to keep Torah. Uh, maybe she has to work on Saturday because she has to feed her family. Maybe she's cleaning Gentile homes, you know, because she needs the supplemental income, etc., etc., etc. But they label her as a sinner, and and so here they are being judgmental and righteous, and she comes in, and they said he's a false prophet because he's eating with sinners. You're supposed to reject them, but maybe they can't keep Torah for reasons that they cannot control. Um, a good example is when I came in to work in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, uh, one of the conditions of my employment is I had to work on Sundays. They said it flat out. You have to work on Sundays. Part of your contract. If you're not willing to work on Sundays, we will not hire you. And so I had to sign the contract that I was willing to work on Sundays, my day of worship, for the good of the institution. So according to good Lutherans, was I being a sinner because I was not there for the sacrament every time it was offered? Actually, actually, that's not fully true. I got some pushback from some people saying if you were a real Lutheran that you would uh, be in a ministry where you could take the sacrament because we're a sacramental people. I had a friend of mine from the seminary say that to me. Okay? He and I broke company because of that. But you're not a pastor. Okay? So, so I was kind of judged in that Lutheranism about not being a real Lutheran because I wasn't there. Right? And then they would come to me and say, well, you're supposed to be another one I used to get all the time from the central office, with uh, central office of the Senate, was, well, you're supposed to be involved in the life of a church. I live in southeastern Kentucky. I thought, I got a snake handling church less than a mile from me, but the closest Lutheran church I have is in Lexington which is an hour and 45 minutes away. So how am I supposed to do that? Well, we don't know. We just have to work it out. You see? So, so there was, there was an, an enormous amount of challenges with came that. I was always interested in how they never looked at it as a mission field. They looked at it as I wasn't fulfilling Lutheranism. Okay? So you can see the controversy here. But then I will tell you, who enjoys being in a Lutheran church now probably more than anybody else in this church? Yes, ma'am. It blows my mind, just based on my background, when you have such a beautiful church close by and you want to sleep in on Sunday morning. I don't get it. Because I, because I went for so long not being able to get to a Lutheran church. So, But I'll tell you what, when, if there ever comes a time in your life when you can't get to a Lutheran church, you'll appreciate it. Okay? But that's just the facts. So going back to this parable, those who have been forgiven much appreciate it, right? 
So that he's telling this parable. And I went, you know, here's Paul. He's maybe in the crowd, sends a bowl, no sign. No. 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 And I can, it, so the crowd would have been, some would have said, that's interesting. Most of it would have been said, really? Yes, ma'am. Um, problem. Yeah, problem. You know, yeah. Well, there's women. I don't want to sound like that. There would have been women serving the the household. Would have been serving the gift of hospitality, right? Or entertaining, dancing. Not with Pharisees, probably not. Probably not. Herod's group, yeah, they would have been holding up their shekel, trying to tuck the shekel in. The Pharisees wouldn't have done no. No, the Pharisees would have been the other way around. The Pharisees would have been saying, you know, they would have been the other direction. Okay, so so you know they're they're so they're they're triggered by her because she's a sinner, and then Jesus comes in and says, "You need to be ministering to those. Those are the ones being rejected. Those are the ones that need more." Okay, so Jesus spent time with Pharisees. That's what I really wanted to make the point here, and because Paul was a Pharisee, he would have been intricately aware of Jesus, if not present, at least in the crowd, okay, at least in the crowd. Okay, let's keep looking. Um, Why was Paul's letter, uh, why are Paul's letters our first look into Christianity? So this is just kind of an information thing. The first letters we have in the New Testament are from Paul. Our first look, our first blush into the Jesus movement and the church comes from Paul, not the Gospels. Paul. The Gospels are written after the Pauline epistles. Most of the Pauline epistles uh, start around 50 AD and are buttoned up before the Gospels are written. I Now, I will say I think Luke's Gospel is really Paul and Acts is really Paul because Luke had traveled with Paul for 16 years. And that's why I think that Luke 7 about the Pharisees is very interesting. He knows... Luke knows all of, of this story and deeply. Maybe Paul remembers that, right? Interesting concept, okay? Uh, number eight, when were the four Gospels written? Okay, so if the Pauline epistles come first and the Gospels come second, when do they come and why were they written? Um, the destruction of the, Jewish, uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD is a huge trigger. Huge trigger. So I think there are stories and there's manuscripts and there's collections of Jesus' sayings that are floating around, but I wouldn't really necessarily put them compiled. Maybe Mark was already written, maybe, even though Mark's gospel is based upon the preaching of Peter in Rome. Possibly. But I don't think it really, the the four Gospels don't really explode and emerge until between 70 and and 90 AD. 70 for Mark is just a round number. Don't hold me to it. Science. Luke and uh, Matthew, about 80 AD, 10 years later. And then finally John, about 90 AD. Okay? Somewhere in that. But the point I want to make there is, is that Paul's letters are our first look into Christianity. Number nine. How many writings do we have in the New Testament? Who's taking Janet's fifth and sixth grade class? She teaches the Bible. I'm just kidding. How many? How many? Uh, how many? How many uh, books do we have in the New Testament? Thirty-seven. Nope. New Testament. Come down. Six. Nope. Close. Very close. Come up one. Twenty-seven. 27. How many are attributed to Paul? 27. No. <laughs> no. No, I think Peter might have a problem with that, James. Um, 13, if not, and I add two more. Because I like to put Luke and Acts in the, in the Pauline camp. Okay? So 15 out of about 27, I consider 13 to Paul and then another two, two directly influenced by Paul. Okay? And that's how I kind of look at that. That's how I run those numbers. Um, so, so he is the vast majority of the New Testament, yes? Okay. Let me hit uh, just one more. I want to keep, kind of keep this uh, short. I want to be here forever. 
Um, number 10, why is Paul the hero of the book of Acts? Let's read that. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Finish the last two, and I'll then we'll stop. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Why is Paul the hero of the book of Acts? In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, we have two churches that are really sending out missionaries in the early church. The first one is Jerusalem, and their primary ministry is to the Jews, both in Palestine and the Diaspora. And then there's Antioch. Those doggone Gentiles, they decided to start their own church. And they're doing it their way. And, and, and so the church in Antioch is started by Gentiles, not Jews. And they begin to send out their own missionaries. Now, which church is Paul attached to and sent out by? Jerusalem or Antioch? It says it right there. Which one? Jerusalem or Antioch? Antioch. This is the Gentile ministry. And they fast, they pray, they're set aside, and they're sent out. So, so Paul is being sent from a Gentile-established church to reach Gentiles with the gospel. That's important. He doesn't make himself an apostle. He's sent out by the church in Antioch. You, you know, all these guys in prison used to tell me, I'm called to preach. I said, by what church? What do you mean? I'm called by God to preach. By what church? Because the biblical model is a preacher without a church is not really one sent. Now, I was a missionary in the prison system sent out from what church? The Lutheran Church Missouri Senate. That was the Senate. I wasn't sent out by an individual church. I was sent out by the Senate, okay? But I was still sent. I was accountable. I was responsible. I had to send back reports and stay connected. And so I just wasn't doing my own thing, right? So people who say, I have a calling upon me to go preach in the street, just go, which church do you represent? Because, if you, because everybody's got to be accountable to everybody else at some level. Where's your relationship? And so all these, you know, the old joke is, how do you start a Baptist church? They get mad at one another. It's supposed to be a joke. They go, they get mad at one another. And so they go, they split and they start church, new churches. That's not how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to be sent out specifically and people validate this mission and usually they would support your mission. Do we support a missionary here? Sure we do. Sure we do. Okay, he's sent out. He's an extension of us. Okay, so he becomes the hero to the Gentiles. And again, this is a Gentile-oriented book, uh, Luke Acts. Finally, number 11, Paul will be considered the apostle. Obviously, there are many apostles, small, a, big A, little A, but Paul will shine greater than all of them, even greater than Peter in his own way. Paul is just the apostle. For Western Christianity, he is the apostle. And right, wrong, or indifferent, you're going to have to wrestle with him. He's got some controversial statements. He's got a temper. He has a hard time keeping his mouth shut. <laughs> Sometimes. I didn't look at you. Sometimes. Okay. So, so Paul is just like you and me. He's not walking, you know, a foot off the ground with a halo around his head. And I think that, you, and I think you're going to pick up with that. And and as you develop a little bit of a relation with Paul by reading his stuff, it makes Paul very, very interesting. But tough to wrestle with, okay? And I hope that we'll kind of unpack some of that. Okay.
I'm going to stop there because we're coming up on time. So let's do three takeaways and then we'll wrap it up. How did you like this so far? Great. Okay, good. I'm just make sure format's good. Diana, you good with it? You like the format? <laughs> it'll be recorded and it'll be posted up. You can always go back and listen to it. Okay. So, so number one, what's something, three things we learned today? Three takeaways. When God is looking for Paul. Right. And, 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 here, and, the, and the danger is, is that sometimes people are like, why is God cursing me? Maybe God wants to get your attention. Maybe, just maybe, God's not mad at you, but he's saying, we haven't spent time together recently. Number two. Yes, yes. That surprises me. Yeah, so you just have it, you know, Yeah, we have this linear mindset, but, but you need to look at it organically. You know, it's just like a growing season. What, what crop grows here first? Wheat. Does it? Are you, you're not. Are you a farmer? <laughs> well, I'm going to turn to the farmers. What do you plant first here? Or you just plant all at the same time? Used to be oats, but they don't plant oats anymore. Corn, probably. What's the first crop you put in the ground here? Probably sunbeams. Now it used to be second, but now I think it's first. <laughs> okay, um, and then and then uh, so then corn goes in next. Yeah. Um, which which do you harvest for? Harvest first. Beans and then the when do you when do you harvest the beans? Now. Okay, when will you harvest the corn? Now. <laughs> so, as soon as you can, as soon as you can, right? You don't want to say. Okay. So yeah, so so yeah, you're right. It's it's uh, the the polling letters are, are are written first, and and then the gospels come second. And and again, I want to really emphasize the gospels come because the church in Jerusalem is destroyed with the Roman occupation. Or they're scattered, and then and the temple's destroyed in 70 AD. That's a monumental moment, both for Judaism and for Christianity. Okay, that's good. Number two, number, number three. The Jews always have community first, and then personal. Right. Or yes, and nation. I mean, whenever you talk to a Jew, it's going to be nation, nation, nation. And one of the things I love about the Israeli mindset. Military, you know this, right? The hardest thing for uh, U.S. soldiers is, are we ever going to use this stuff? Right? Right? Whereas in, um, in Judaism, they're always using it because they're always under attack. And I, and I think that sometimes maybe what's happened with Christianity is we've just got very, very comfortable. And now that the secular world is pushed in so hard... Maybe, just maybe, people will say, maybe I need to double down on my faith to push back against the secular stuff. I mean, how far does it go, right? You know, it's just something to think about. When did Jews for Jesus begin? Uh, well, I, uh, uh, Peter. <laughs> no, I said the Apostle Peter, because he sent to the Jews. Uh, when did the Jews for Jesus start? There. Um it really, in modern times, came out of the late 60s, early 70s. Because the intention was, is you don't have to stop being a Jew culturally. It, it used to be that a Jew could convert, but we expected to become Christians. Like Gentile Christians. And a Jew would reject that, because that's not their culture. It's just kind of like um, Deb and I were talking yesterday. And she goes, well, what do you want to do for Thanksgiving service? I said, it's a secular holiday, you know. <laughs> what do we do? It's not really part of the church here. I mean, and so what was my question? Well, what do you guys do? And, uh, <laughs> and I said, it's your tradition. That's fine. I said, how many did we have last year? She said, 88. And I said, well, do we get a lot of people that come in, you know, for Thanksgiving that are family? I'm sure we have a lot of people leave. He says, yeah, a lot of people come in too. I said, okay, then fine. Then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about doing communion, having a service because it's good for the families for Thanksgiving to do it. It's not commanded in scripture, but it, it's a good thing to do if there's a need for it. You know, where's the why? So that's, they created the why. You know, you could become a believer in Jesus and not have to give up your Judaism. Do we have a Jewish outreach in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Center? We do. I was involved. 
Did it, did anybody look at my pitch set when I uh, gave it to you guys before the call? Was I involved in it? Never came up, did it? Yeah, I was involved with Apple and Zai for many years. Because I had Jews in the prison and I, I needed to be part of something that I felt that was... So I doubled down on that and kind of got involved a little bit with them and had a little bit of a relationship. I've kind of moved on from that. But uh, yeah, for about five, six, seven years, I was kind of helping Apple and Zai. Not really directly, but in the prison because I had a lot of Messianic Christians and stuff. Interesting ministry. Okay? They're now based out of... Uh, Texas. But uh, yeah, we do. We actually have our, a group that supports that. All right, anything else? What's the one takeaway that you're going to take this week from this? The three. What's the one, what's the silver bullet from this study? He was, but he's also a As a man, I appreciate that comment. He is a mixed bag like all people. He's a mixed customer. Okay. Uh, let's rise up. We'll have Lord's Prayer. I say that to the high school kids. They pop right up. I say that to this crowd. And I know, I know. But I was told we have to stand for the Lord's Supper. That's the tradition in this church. You have to wait just a second. I know. I going in the right direction. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you next week.